This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday. Time to talk politics and the price of food has become very political. Yesterday, Galen Weston, the billionaire chairman of Loblaw Companies, announced a price freeze on about 1,500 lower end no-name products. Now, the polite criticism called it a PR stunt, but he was eviscerated on social media while some of his competitors say there is always some level of price freeze this time of year. The NDP has been talking about so-called greedflation for months and accusing the big chains of price gouging. And yesterday, in a rare show of unanimous support, MPs agreed to investigate grocery chain profits. Meanwhile, The public inquiry into Ottawa's use of the Emergency Measures Act to deal with the convoy protest continues with some very interesting testimony from outgoing Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Wright, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Glenda Bearmaker, a former Scarborough City Councillor and Deputy Mayor for Scarborough. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thanks, Let's begin with the inquiry into the use of the emergency powers. Uh, there was some very interesting testimony. Uh, what really struck me was that the police thought it would be over the first weekend, even though the hotel people were telling them that there were thousands of people trying to book rooms for a month and more. Uh, that seems like a bit of a disconnect. Also, that they really tried to get some help from the provincial government, and uh, the province was very clear that it wasn't their file, and that provincial officials even refused to attend uh, tripartite meetings. And then there was the RCMP. Uh, additional troops were supposed to come. Uh, they didn't come, not troops, but additional forces. And there was confusion about how they were supposed to be used. Lisa Wright, what do you make of it? So what I make of it is this is an inquiry that's mandated by virtue of using the emergency powers contained in the Act. And all that it's supposed to do is determine whether or not they use the powers appropriately. Was this a proper way in which to use the powers? And instead, what we're getting is an inquiry into everything else that happened in the lead-up. So I guess maybe my question is, is the incompetency of other layers of government a good enough reason to invoke these extraordinary measures of curtailing people's um, people's rights and people's civil liberties? And, and that's where I will find it interesting, you know, whether or not uh, because other levels and other police forces didn't do their jobs, that you get to come in from the federal point of view and say, okay, fine, um, I guess I'm going to invoke these extraordinary powers because you guys didn't do your work. If that's what we're shaping up to see, that is a sad commentary on, on all of our, all of our forces and all of our um, bureaucracy when it comes to keeping the peace. In your view, Lisa, did the provincial government, did the Ford government just wash their hands of the whole thing inappropriately? We don't know yet. I think there's a lot more testimony to come, and I think the picture is going to be a lot clearer. But as I said, this this is supposed to be an inquiry about whether or not you used powers, parliamentary powers, appropriately, not about what ended up happening. But I guess we're getting the fulsome now disclosure as to what everybody was doing in the in the middle of these in the middle of this crisis. Yeah, not not much, not enough, not the right thing. Charles Sousa, what's your view? I mean, there was chaos, certainly, and uh, we don't, I mean, as Lisa mentioned, we're not here to 
determine who did right, who did wrong in respect to the various levels of government. But the fact is, something went awry. And there was chaos. There was people feeling abandoned. There was illegal occupations. There was hazards in regards to fire and hospital care and the anarchy and the encampments. Um, I mean, if it was allowed to happen or if the Ottawa police and the Ottawa uh, City Council or even the federal government didn't do their job effectively at the start, well, they had a problem now. And they had to enact something in order to resolve matters to protect people who are being put in harm's way. Uh, that's my impression. Uh, uh, and uh, I don't, you know, listen, when, when it came to Toronto, steps were taken ahead of time to yep. avoid uh, the very same thing that happened in Ottawa. So we took prior uh, uh, measures to ensure that we weren't putting Torontonians in hazard way, to ensure that the QEW and the Gardner weren't clogged, to ensure that people had access to the hospitals. Imagine the convoy seizing the airport. What would we do then? Like, these are measures that had to have been taken initially. They weren't, so not, so something had to take place thereafter, and that's what happened here. Do you have a view on, on whether the Ford government acted appropriately, or and do you have a view of that? Oh, I, I think, again, we'll see what the inquiry comes out, but uh, obviously steps were taken when they were looking at coming to Toronto, and they were... Locally, current. yeah, but uh, and don't forget, I mean good that steps were taken in Toronto, but but people in Toronto had a chance to look at what was going on in Ottawa. Well, that's exactly it. And Ontario represents Ottawa, right? So they had a duty and responsibility, be it with the OPP, to support the police and others to ensure that that chaos and that sort of thing wouldn't take place. There was an anti-COVID thing going. There was an anti-government. There was an anti-Trudeau effort that was taking place. There was an, there was an underlying message beyond just a peaceful protest. And people felt trapped. They felt helpless. And I think all levels of government had a duty and a responsibility to protect those citizens. Glenn? Uh, well, certainly, I, I want to start off by saying, you know, having this inquiry, I think, is the most important thing we're doing right now. I, I think we do need a deep dive, a deep analysis of day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, what happened to see, you know, that the past is the past. But really, I think the purpose of the inquiry and the act is to say, if any government infringes on my right to assemble, my right to speak freely, that's a very serious action. And so the inquiry is absolutely needed. I think they do need to do the analysis, and we will leave it to them to do that and to figure out was uh, invoking the act the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Was the then police chief correct to, to believe that um, moving in on protesters um, and, and removing them from in front of uh, Parliament Hill could lead to more trouble, could lead to violence, could lead to shootings, could lead to death, could lead to riots? We, you know, we've all, we all saw, you know, we all watched it on TV. Uh, we'll all have our own opinions, but I think the more facts and information we get, the better. But I think what, what the purpose of this is to help us for next time. You know, what, whatever their conclusion is, I hope it helps the Ottawa police, the Hamilton police, the Windsor, Toronto police, the OPP, the RCMP, the federal governments, the provincial governments. This was an extraordinary act. It was the first time it was ever invoked. And this inquiry is the right thing to do. Lisa, I think you asked the fundamental question there is, uh, does the federal government step in to cover the incompetence or negligence of, of, of other levels? Yeah, well, I mean, it's defined exactly in the act, Libby. It says that the federal government steps in if whatever is happening is beyond the capability of a province to deal with. And as, as you know, as is pointed out, it's this is, a, this is a coast-to-coast-to-coast act that's passed. It's not just for one area of, of Ottawa that you can pass this. It's for the Emergencies Act is invoked, and it's right across the country. And they, uh, they're going to have to determine whether or not this was the appropriate thing for them to do. Glenn, do you think that the Ford government's refusal to uh, step in, uh, do you think that was ideological or... Uh, you know, what they said on the face of it, that it, it was not a, a politician matter, it was a policing matter. What do you make of that? Uh, I have to say, as of today, you know, a little after 12 noon on a Tuesday, I don't know, because I didn't know a lot of the things that, that has already come out in the inquiry, including some of the hotel association uh, uh, people 
telling the police officers this protest is going to last 30 days, not three days. Um, that, that really shook me. I said, well, if the police knew this, did they know it? And if they didn't know it, they should have known it. Was their intel wrong? And again, then was it a, a correct or incorrect judgment call by the local police chief to say, well, maybe they'll stay for more than three days, but we don't want to go in there with batons and shields and and drag them out by the hair. Maybe that was the right call. We don't know today. Um, and that's what that analysis will say. You know, maybe, you know, the, you know, through the act, they'll say maybe it was justified. Maybe the police moved in too slowly. Maybe, maybe they're going to make the, the conclusion that they actually did the right thing. And again, if they conclude that the provincial government did the wrong thing, um, then that's a black mark on the record. But hopefully for the provincial government, next time something like this happens somewhere or anywhere across Canada, they'll be better prepared by learning from their past uh, things that they did right and things they did wrong. Wait a minute. I don't think that they are going to have an opinion on the what what the provincial government did, Charles. Uh, I mean, people, the, the, this, um, this, this, this result will investigate uh, not criminal charges, not trial, but it will un- it will uncover many of the events and things that have taken place, and and so I think the provincial government will be held to an account to some extent. And I think those that were also supporting the convoy uh, for political engagement may maybe may come out as well. Um, but when you talk about rights and people's rights to have a, po- a peaceful protest and be out there. No one's questioning that. No one's questioning their right to speak. But we are questioning people's rights to infringe upon other people's rights. And I think that's what's happened here. They kind of crossed the line. And then the, the, the Emergency Act is a national issue. And there were cross-border occupations elsewhere, not just in Ontario. And so it's appropriate to try to find ways to curb the economic, negative economic impact that was being caused by this, uh, this endeavor. And it was, more than, it was more than just a protest. Uh, yeah, and uh, this just in, uh, Trudeau, the Prime Minister, is accusing Doug Ford of, quote, hiding during the convoy protest. Uh, Lisa, fair comment? We'll find out. Again, you know, Libby, that part of the Act uh, says that the Prime Minister has to ask whether or not the province thinks it's beyond their capability to deal with this, and therefore they need the federal government to invoke the Emergencies Act, and, and I'm sure we'll get lots of comment around then. And I, I would add one other thing, though, um, not only about whether or not the province should have acted, also it's, there's going to be a question about how broad were the powers that the, that the federal government used. For example, did they need to freeze bank accounts? Did they need to go that far? And I, that will be, uh, I think, testimony for another day, but something that I'll be watching as well. Not only whether or not they were they needed to invoke the Emergencies Act, but when they did it, did they just go way too far in terms of powers they utilize that obviously contravene people's civil liberties? Okay, let's uh, move along uh, to something I, I think is a mushrooming story. And that is, uh, you know, there's unanimous consent to investigate grocery store profits. There are polls that show that most Canadians think they are being gouged at the grocery store, though when you talk to analysts and marketing professors, they say, well, there's no real evidence of that. And even though they're making record profits, the, the margins aren't necessarily that big. Uh, uh, how do you see this, Glenn? Um, I think it's, it's a big challenge uh, because, you know, uh, we all get hurt when we go shopping and we see the prices going up. And certainly, you know, I make enough money that uh, I don't mind if the price of bananas go up. I, still, I keep buying bananas. But there are a lot of families now, more so than, than I could ever remember, every, almost every church and every mosque and every place of worship in my part of Toronto and Scarborough now has a food bank or a food network to help people literally have enough food to eat every single month. So I think there's something wrong. I don't know if we can blame it on, on the grocery stores. I mean, it shouldn't surprise myself and my friends that grocery stores are a profit-making business. 
we live in a free enterprise system. So the fact that grocery stores are making a profit really doesn't offend me. They're supposed to make a profit. And in fact, if my local grocery store didn't make a profit, they would go bankrupt and they would stop selling me bananas and apples and kiwis and mushrooms. So I, I think they need to make a profit for people to think that, you know, somehow the government might try to regulate prices, I think is crazy. Because again, what, what, is, a, what is a real price of a mushroom? I mean, how does the government of Canada or Ontario or anybody figure that out? I think sometimes you've got to leave it to the free market. And if I think the price of mushrooms is too high, then I won't buy them. Uh, but, you know, we, we've got to look into this. And I think this, uh, this, this is a symptom. I think the bigger issue is, is, do people have enough money to live a decent life, pay their rent, buy their groceries, and take care of their families? And I think right now the income distribution in our society is is um, going the wrong way. The rich are getting richer, as they say, and the poor are getting poorer, and it's not good for anybody. Charles, uh, is this becoming uh, a convenient political tool? Yeah, some would argue that it's a bit of a PR stunt. Um, I mean, other countries did this before Canada, so we're a bit late in terms of freezing some of the no-name brands and the in-house brands that Loblaws has. Some would say that... uh, you know, a little too late. I mean, they've lost some consumer trust because of measures of collusion and price fixing that has happened, some scandals. Oh, the bread bread fixing the thing. The bread fixing, yeah. That we all got our 25 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll see what others follow suit. But in the end, will it help uh, consumers? Will, will they uh, benefit from having, you know, more controlled pricing by the respective manufacturer? Because in essence, Loblaws has a manufacturer and a wholesaler, I mean, a supplier as well as a retailer in this case. Yeah. Loblaws is busy, and others are busy complaining and pointing fingers at at suppliers for raising their prices. But everybody wants to maintain their margins and pass it on to and pass on those costs. So uh, it's listen. I, I don't mind companies making money. Uh, that I'm, this is this is the world we live in. I do uh, can you know want to make certain that it's a free enterprise and that. Uh, uh, those that are consumers have enough. They don't have the power right now because it's so limited in terms of competition. But hey, go to Kensington Market. I hear there's better deals there. Uh, but Charles, do you think the politicians are kind of jumping on a bandwagon here? Um, well, and, you know, is Jagmeet Singh playing up the the, the 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 issue? I mean, they're bringing awareness to it, and I've I've seen them do this with when it comes to insurance pricing, for example, where we have very little recourse in terms of how to limit those costs. And and uh, this is the case here, right? We have some major conglomerates who have major uh, retail distribution, not just in the in 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 the grocery scene, but in else in, in other matters. And uh, and nobody likes to see uh, the these big people make a lot of money while people are suffering, and uh, so they're bringing it to light. And what's happening is now they're just going downstream by blaming others who are who are passing on the costs. I I, I don't mind. The investigations and and bringing it to awareness. I just want to make sure it's fair. Lisa, are the politicians just jumping on a bandwagon here? I think they're reacting to what Canadians are talking about, and isn't that what we're supposed to do as politicians? React to what our constituents are concerned about. I actually admire that in the United States, if something controversial happens, oftentimes you will see a Senate committee suddenly pop up or a congressional committee suddenly pop up, and the CEO hauled in front of them and told they have to testify on TV. And I find that to be very effective, quite frankly. So I'm glad, I, like Charles, I don't have a problem with this. I'd add one other thing, though, um, uh, Libby. In, in the capital markets now, in the free market right now, one of the things that shareholders care about is ESG, environmental social governance, in terms of how well a company is doing. Social is a big part of it. It's not just about being environmental. So shareholders, if they care that ESG is going to be valued and, and if the if the Western group, if Loblaws wants to talk about how well they do on ESG, then one of the things they should do is think more about what the actual consumers think about when they're purchasing and what they're concerned about. And this may very well be a vehicle for it to happen. So I don't think it's an overreach by politics. I don't I think it works well within the capital market system, especially since we're all going down the path of caring about ESG and investing around it. Shareholders have the ultimate say when it comes to what a company does or doesn't do in terms of their their business strategy. But um, certainly those of us who purchase the goods should also have a say. Uh, 
One of the things that is pointed out by the people who say, no, well, they're not exactly price gouging is, uh, and, and Lisa, I think I'm, I'm naming your employer here, but they say that the banks like RBC makes more profit than all of the groceries combined. So, hey, why are you picking on the groceries? Is, is that a fair comment? And politics, for sure. And politicians will always pick on the banks as well. And they did it after the pandemic by applying a general tax, as, as we all saw. So, as I said, it is fair game for politicians to listen to what the public has to say about their comfort or non-comfort with respect to profits and for people to have to come and, and report and answer questions. I do think it's fundamental, and I don't think we're going to have Galen Weston actually answering questions, but um, <laughs> in the United States, they do. In the United States, they do, and that's, uh, boy, you know, yesterday we discussed this with our Zoomer squad who are polite. And, and you know, people are saying, well, at the end of the day, a price freeze is good, though uh, I question that. There are some items in there, you know, I buy no-name butter, and the last time I looked, it was really expensive, and if they're freezing it there, that's not necessarily a good thing. It was over seven, <laughs> seven bucks for, yeah. for a block of, of unsalted butter. Uh, but um, it, it, he was eviscerated on social media is like the, the billionaire chairman, you know, throwing us a crumb. Uh, Glenn, what's your take on that? Is it, is it a case of a no good deed going unpunished or uh, is there something for other grocers like take a lesson here? Um, I, I think there is. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, you know, I'm on social media like everybody. Uh, there's social media warriors whose hobby it is is to sit by their computers or by beside their phones and, and just uh, make comments about other human beings. And most of, often they're very negative. Um, but it's true. It, uh, you know, somebody announcing a, a freeze on, on produce, uh, maybe after they've raised the prices uh, for the last four or five months in a row, uh, it does seem a little bit insincere. It does look, seem like grandstanding and getting a bit of free publicity. And certainly, we're all for better or worse, we're all talking about it today. But I think most people walking into the store who hear the prices are frozen for the next couple of months till till after Christmas, most people go, "Well, good. At least that helps me a little bit." Um, and again, it comes back to—I mean, now we're talking. It is. I, I truly think it's a moral issue. How much you charge somebody for a cob of corn, or for a Honeycrisp apple, um, or for uh, a block of unsalted butter is really a moral question. You know, is that price fair? And is it fair for? Galen Weston and a few other people to be billionaires, while the rest of us can hardly afford to pay the rent. Um, it's a very complex question, and that's why we have politicians getting elected because they're supposed to make the rules so that so that all of our society, you know, and I, you know, Weston family who has you know who have put their um, heart and soul into the business. They, I'm sure, when it first started, they probably could have gone bankrupt. They've taken all the risk to build up a, a really good grocery store. Uh, you know, I, I, you can you can get anything you want in those stores. There must be seven thousand different items of produce from around the entire planet you can purchase. So, you know, is it fair that they get compensated uh, well for that? I think it is. The question, though, is: Is it fair that they have that many billions when the rest of us have no billions? And that's where I think our government has to come with its income redistribution policies, uh, you know, its, its uh, living wage policies. It's uh, making sure, again, I, I really wish that we didn't have food banks. Um, so, you know, we, I think we need our government to make sure that those who struggle the most get the most help. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Philip in Innisfil while we're on this subject, because Philip wants to talk about the price of apples. Hi, Philip. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Okay, I don't know if anybody noticed, but the price of a foreign apple is the same as a locally grown apple, two forty nine a pound. Mm-hmm. And the question I ask myself is, surely it is more expensive to bring it up from Chile or even the United States than it is to grow it in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So, so why should the price be the same? Uh, you ask a very good question <laughs> that I'm afraid it's- I can't answer. To add to that point, I remember going into my local store and I said to the produce manager, I said, how come, you know, the Ontario apples are the same as those imported from Chile or the United States? He said, oh, well, the farmers are charging more. Well, I assume that everybody's on the bandwagon to charge more because there's a higher retail price and therefore I can get more for my wholesale price. 
the answer to a lot of things, Philip, is because they can. So that's exactly. possibly the answer. Philip, you, know you know what the funny thing is now, Libby? If yeah. you go into the supermarket now, the price of apples has collapsed. It's now 79 cents a pound. And why? Because we're coming to the end of the crop. And winter yep. is coming and they got to get rid of their products. Well, yeah, it's always with that as things are uh, getting close to that best before date or equivalent, the price goes down. Correct. Correct. But Enjoy the them is, tonight. Why, why should a locally grown apple be priced the same as a foreign imported apple? I mean, I much prefer to support stuff for, um, grown in Ontario rather than have to buy overseas. Yep. Okay, Philip. Thanks for that. Um, and Libby, maybe yeah. one of the answers is the Canadian farmers may have the economic clout to to charge enough for their apples so that they make a living wage and they they can send their kids to school. And maybe those those farmers in South Africa, in Chile, in Argentina, don't have the economic power. So very often when you look at coffee and tea production, you know there were very well known cases where people are being exploited overseas, making pennies. They'll they can't afford to send their children to school. They can't afford medical care. So you know they don't have the power. So it's a very, you know, uh, the price of apples gets become a very complicated question, and I do think it is a moral question, because I want to pay enough when I buy apples. I want to make sure that not only does the grocer make a profit, because I think they should, but I want to make sure the farmer, whether they're Canadian or Argentinians, um, make enough money to live. And, and that's why I don't think we can have, figure out the price of apples on this show, but I think that's the moral question that most of us don't think about when we go in to buy some butter or some mushrooms or, or some apples, is how, how, how do they make the price? Is the person who makes the, my favorite brand of coffee uh, uh, down in Jamaica or down in Colombia, you know, are they being paid fairly? The answer is most of us have no idea. Okay, yeah, they're, they're also fair trade products. I'm looking at the clock. We have to wrap things up. I'm going to give everybody 20 seconds. No more, please. Uh, Charles Souza, what's coming up? Does, does, does this story have a lot of legs, in your opinion? Well, it's really tough for people to buy um, the claim from someone who's a billionaire, has many vacation homes that he feels they're paying. And that's the issue. People just have a hard time believing it. And they feel frustrated, unfortunately, because times are tough. Inflation is high. Okay, Lisa? So I think uh, in about three weeks, we're going to be talking about the price of, of natural gas and the price of electricity. It's going to be a tough sun. It's going to be a tough winter for a lot of people, not just on food. So these may be the first folks that we're going to haul in front of a committee to ask why it's so expensive, but there's going to be others to follow. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, uh, Glenn, 20 seconds. Um, you know, I, I think it can maybe uh, because I'm a, a former city councillor, I'm one of those people who believes in the role of government. We do need government to make sure that everybody in society is treated fairly. I don't think government should be uh, regulating prices of, of gasoline or, or bananas. Um, so some things we do have to leave to the private sector. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Very interesting conversation. And um, yeah, more to come, as Lisa pointed out. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, Glenda Bearmaker, and Lisa Raid. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks, Libby. Okay, we are taking a break. And when we come back, it's World Menopause Day. Let's talk when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. These days, we talk openly about all kinds of things that used to be whispered and hidden. And so today is World Menopause Day. As many as 10 million women, Canadian women over the age of 40, are in some stage of menopause, according to the nonprofit group Catalyst. And it says that uh, menopause is often overlooked in the workplace and it wants companies to implement a strategy to ensure that women employees going through it can be better supported. Now, symptoms, of course, can vary widely from no big deal to debilitating, and they can certainly interfere with your enjoyment and productivity. Now, if you want to call in and talk about your own experience, or uh, do you feel that you were belittled or anything like that about 
menopause. I mean, it's, if anything, it's, it's often been kind of the butt of jokes. So the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Jennifer Blake, a professor at the University of Toronto with clinical expertise in menopause and Vandana Juneha, Vice President of Advisory Services at Catalyst. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Jennifer, Thank you. Jennifer, uh, do we need to change our attitudes about menopause or do women just need to be more aware? I think it's both. I think, and it's not just the women who need to be aware. I think that we, we need to, you're right, it's been the butt of jokes. It should not be the butt of jokes. It is a transition that, that uh, we go through if we live long enough that it's an inevitable transition. And it's one that is a tremendous opportunity for women to really uh, think about their health and the decisions they can make now that are going to improve their health for the next almost half their life that's, uh, that's yet to come. So um, I'm really pleased that we're having this conversation today. Uh, Vandana Janeha, you're, you are focusing on the effects in the workplace. What happens in the workplace around menopause that has to be uh, improved or corrected? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here today. It's great to be with you. Um, you know, we see that of course, the conversation around menopause is uh, prevalent. We are talking about it. We're hearing about it in the news today being, uh, you know, World Menopause Day. But one thing that we're really seeing missing in the conversation is actually the impact that it actually has on women and in workplaces in general. Um, so there are um, several impacts in the workplace itself. Um, and as a result, we really see the need for having a greater strategy in place. Yeah, like, like, like what? Like what, what happens in the workplace around menopause? That's a problem. Well, we see uh, women in particular um, being impacted at a stage in their careers when really um, they are having the experience of um, going through either perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause at a stage in their career when they are in, they're either stepping into leadership roles, more senior roles, um, or they are experiencing uh, roles where there are many more demands on them um, at a time where their, their health is also impacted. So they're seeing these two things coming together. Um, and it has an impact on how, uh, first of all, they're able to um, uh, function in their roles, but also how they may be perceived. So we see this, uh, the concept of intersectionality coming into place where there's the intersection of uh, age or, as well as gender at the same time. And these are issues that we're not necessarily comfortable in talking about in the workplace. Yeah, I, I, I need to get uh, more specific. Maybe uh, Dr. Blake can help. Now, is it an issue that uh, you can have mood swings when you're going through menopause, and this certainly can affect what goes on in the workplace? Is it that uh, if you're having a hot flash, suddenly you're going to turn all red, and it's embarrassing if that happens in a meeting? Uh, what are the biggest problems, Dr. Blake, that would interfere with day-to-day? There's there's a lot that changes, and and it's a lot of it is related to the changes in hormone levels. Uh, estrogen itself actually helps us adapt and cope with stress. So one of the things that we hear very commonly from women is that they are finding their workplace more stressful. Well, the workplace is more stressful, but they are perceiving that they are finding it more personally stressful. Women are also making decisions about their values and and how they want to spend their time. So I think that's another thing that we need to consider. Sometimes the stresses may not be all that much different, but women are making an assessment to say, is this how I want to spend my time? This does not seem uh, like a valuable use of my time. So is, are, are we are we using women's talents well at that stage? Are we asking women to do things that 
maybe at this stage of life they've accumulated a lot of knowledge and wisdom and can could be doing other things in their workplace that would be making a contribution that they would find valuable and that their workplace would find valuable. But you're right. Women say, look, I have trouble if I have a hot flash in the middle of a meeting or I'm a trial lawyer and I forget a word when I'm talking to the jury Losing words, having trouble with with finding words is a very common thing that women experience as they go through the early part of the transition, but it can be a critical thing depending on your job. It can be a minor thing if you have a different kind of work. Uh, Women also have physical symptoms and uh, mood swings uh, or feeling more uh, that you well, more mood swings, I think, is a pretty good definition. Uh, can certainly be a feature, sleep disruption, so you feel tired at work. There are many of these things that are uh, a concern. But what's important to know is any of the studies that have looked at how your brain is actually working, your ability to do your job, your executive function, show that that is not impaired. So as we worry about how do we ensure that the workplace gets the best out of all of its employees and gives every one of its employees the opportunity to achieve their potential. We also want to make sure that we don't set up a system where women are perceived as being somehow weaker or needing accommodation in a way that gives a negative connotation. Women at this stage have so much to offer, and they are frequently freer from things that that were distractions and Um, pressures on their time in earlier life. So a smart employer would be thinking exactly as Catalyst is suggesting and figuring out how to make it a a great workplace to be part of. Uh, Vandana, uh, when I was reading your release, uh, what I took from it is that you did think that there have to be accommodations for women going through menopause. So is, is, is that uh, what you're getting at, and what are those accommodations? Absolutely, and I, you know, I would actually like to think of it um, uh, almost differently from accommodating women to really recognizing that uh, we're dealing with half the population who is all going to go through this stage in life, and um, with women dealing with the reality of um, ageism, there is a real fear. You know, I think uh, there was. Um, uh, research from the, the Menopause Foundation of Canada, Canada that mentioned that three in 10 women are fearing that their colleagues may see them as weak, old, or past their prime. And I think, you know, this point has just been raised, which is um, that that's not really how we want to approach this issue. And in fact, it is, we are dealing with a large part of the working population, and we want to be inclusive of all individuals in the workplace. So at Catalyst, with the work that we do around accelerating progress for women through workplace inclusion, we really want to be able to create a strategy that is going to be truly inclusive to our employees. So that includes um, really defining a menopause strategy and empowering leaders at all levels to really acknowledge the challenges that can be associated with menopause and then also communicate very openly about the type of support that's available. So, oh, um, sorry, uh, I'm sorry, I, I thought you were uh, pausing your thought there because I've just clicked on the phone. We've got Catherine in Toronto. Hi, Catherine. Hi, can you hear me? Yep, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to share my personal experience. So, I, um, before I retired, I shared an office with, <clears throat> excuse me, seven other women, and we were all menopausal at the time. Okay, yeah. Five, five women had brain fog, hot flashes, and night sweats. Two of us did not. And I think it's a function of, of lifestyle. Why didn't two of us? We didn't do caffeine. We didn't do alcohol. We were vegetarian. Uh, no drug. We weren't on any meds, and we weren't doing recreational drugs, and we were exercising three days a week. And we sailed through menopause. We didn't have any of the symptoms that I just described. Yeah, well, you so, know, it also might have been your uh, genetic makeup, frankly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you you also probably drew the lucky gene. But thank you for bringing that up, the whole issue of lifestyle, Catherine. I really appreciate that because I want to ask the doctor a question. Uh, 
Are there any general recommendations for easing symptoms that you can easily do with lifestyle? There are certainly important things to do with lifestyle. Whether or not they're going to make a difference on symptoms isn't quite so clear, but there's there's nothing that Catherine said she was doing that you would say, oh, don't do that. Those are all really healthy choices. We also know that there, that alcohol affects women differently as we get older and certainly is very disruptive of sleep and caffeine. Some people uh, find that they are more sensitive to caffeine. So uh, having a, a couple of, of cups of coffee a day may be absolutely enough and, and perhaps stopping coffee after midday so that it doesn't disrupt sleep. So there's little lifestyle adjustments like that you can make. Absolutely be physically active. Absolutely um, have a healthy diet because uh, weight gain is very frequently associated with menopause because our metabolism is changing. And with loss of estrogen, the way our, our belly fat uh, metabolizes changes. So this is when you want to make sure that you're making really good healthy food choices and eating mindfully. All of that stuff is good. None of it, sadly, is going to assure you that you're going to sail through menopause, but it's a good thing to do. Okay. On that note, I'm going to wrap things up. Thanks so much, Vandana Juneha and Dr. Jennifer Blake. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. much. We're taking another break, and when we come back, potholes. Have you encountered too many potholes that should have been repaired at the end of last winter? Has it damaged your car? What do you think when we come back? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I was very glad to see a piece on potholes in the Toronto Star today because I was starting to think I was the only negative Nelly complaining about them after I brought it up with John Tory at last Thursday's CARP mayoral debate. We're not getting the basics. I mean, it yeah. really, it really well, seems... Which basic are you talking about? <laughs> oh, which one? Uh, <laughs> well, go ahead, Nate, talk about it. So, I drove down Bay Street at the end of the summer. This is, we want to revitalize our downtown. It's full of potholes. Why weren't those potholes filled? 180,000 of them have been filled. And and the fact is we rely on people to let us know where they are. And I think actually we have a pretty good record of getting out and filling them. 180,000 so far this year. Okay, well, it turns out that the city pulled around $36 million from the city's state of good repair budget to cover a pandemic shortfall. Now, potholes can be dangerous because they make drivers swerve. And according to the CAA, they're also expensive. They cost at least $300 to fix that kind of damage, and it can raise into the thousands. And frankly, I don't know of any repair that costs only $300, but I digress. So uh, if you have a pothole experience, give me a shout, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Elliot Silverstein, the Director of Government Relations at the CAA Insurance. Hi, Elliot. Hi, good afternoon. Well, uh, how big a problem is the delay in fixing potholes? It's just, you know, when, when you're driving around in September, you really don't expect to find many of them. You know, it, it has a significant ripple effect because, again, we, we do experience potholes the most right at the end of the winter season and into the spring once we see the thaw. Um, we're seeing and we're hearing a lot more of it right now. But, you know, really the challenge is, is that the, the maintenance and the quality of the roads right now is, is, has never been more important. We have so many people that are getting back out there and, and reliving some of their routines, wh- whether it be as cyclists, as pedestrians or drivers. And, and uh, you know, again, having to swerve for a pothole or hitting a pothole could have other effects because um, regardless of what mode of transportation you're using, you're probably feeling the impact of these potholes. Right. And it's also expen- it's expensive for all of us because apparently for 
every dollar that you spend repairing the roads in a timely way prevents $10 later on. So uh, it can impact us individually if we damage our cars, but also collectively. It certainly has a challenge, and that's why for many years we've talked about the need for dedicated funding. Because again, knowing that there's money being invested to to fix the roads um, and keep them in good repair it is so critical. Because yes, again, drivers uh, or cyclists will have to pay for the repairs to, to their modes of transportation. But you know, we want to make sure that even if you get your your vehicle repaired, you don't hit the same pothole a second time and then kind of re- reinvent it all over again and have the exact same problem. So. Certainly, you know, we want to see uh, uh, safer roads. We want to see uh, roads that are in, in good working order. And, and I think, you know, again, cities across the province are working with that right now. Um, but we want to make sure uh, roads are in good shape because it, it prevents uh, wear and tear on tires at a minimum. Um, and, and again, we, we are all looking for ways to avoid additional cost these days. Uh- the other thing the mayor told me, he said, we rely on residents to tell us where the potholes are. Is that the problem or is the problem that uh, the city had to find cash to save cash and uh, they thought, OK, we won't fix all the rest of the potholes? I, I think it's a bit of a shared responsibility. I think the city is well aware of where the bigger issues are on some of the major roads. I think sometimes the roads that are less traveled that may have challenges on them, the more that people can speak up and tell City Hall that there's a challenge, the faster they can they can move ahead with that. I think, again, if you do see something and you, you experience it, contact the city, let them know, have your friends reach out as well, because you know the, the strength in numbers approach is, is very, very critical here, because if the city doesn't hear the frustration, there's not really a push for them to act. What are the main type uh, of damage that it does to your car if you uh, go over one? I mean, you could run into various situations like like tire damage, tire punctures. You could impact your rims. Um, again, it really depends on, on the type of pothole you're hitting, the speed you're going at as well. I mean, again, and, you know, there's there's other issues that, that can... Uh, can be impacted, and that's again, you know, going back to the to the uh, the tried and true reminders of, of driving safe and focusing on the road. You know, hopefully, if you do hit a pothole, it's at a relatively low speed, so that damage um, is minimal, uh, if at all. But um, you know, you re- you really want to avoid those costs because, again, if you start looking into alignment and rim issues, the the, the costs go up significantly. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Pat in Toronto. Uh, Pat, you have a pothole story, but let's yes, keep it I have short. A pothole story with a bit of a twist to it. I believe this was back in 2018, and I hit a pothole on Duplex Avenue north of Eglinton, and uh, I had one flat tire. I thought so. I called CAA. The guy came up, and we had two flat tires. So. Uh, Anyway, I put in a claim to the city, phone 311, I believe is the number. And in the conversation at that point, I was a counselor up in Muskoka. I mentioned I was a counselor. All of a sudden, things changed. I think I got back $1,700 for the damage, but it took about eight or nine months to get back. Um, so I don't know whether it's a, a, a secret. So you made a profit have, on that. It worked for me. You you made a profit on that. Oh, I didn't make a profit. No, 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 no. I they, they replaced the rims and they re- replaced the two tires. That was the whole thing. And that cost seventeen hundred bucks. Well, I think it was it was a number like that. It was I was amazed at the size of the number. Okay, well, I think uh, we all are when we need auto repairs. Uh, so, I mean, um, is that does that sound like uh, an average kind of a cost, Elliot? It could be because you know you know what what the gentleman explained is that, is that it was more than just tire damage. There was rim damage as well, and that depending on the vehicle you have, um, the cost could be quite high. But I think that what he did by uh, putting a claim in with the city is, is absolutely something that people should consider. But there are some things that that consumers need to understand, and that is notifying the city right away, having documentation, so being able to provide evidence of where it was get the filing in quick, get all the details in, because, you know, it increases your the likelihood of getting the claim fulfilled. So there are options out there. Not a lot of people do that. But if you know exactly where it happened, there may be a situation where you can get some of that money recovered. How do you prove that that is where you had your damage? You know, it really depends. I think I think in the situation that was just explained a moment ago, he was broken down, so it was indisputable that it happened right there. Okay. Um, it, it, it does get more challenging, but that's why you want to be able to provide that evidence right away. So if something happens 
you know, you know, in the in the dinner hour on your on your drive home, um, get that get that information in as soon as possible because that way it, it, it's a snapshot in time and that it, it can be assessed right away. Um, you don't want to wait uh, days or even weeks to say, um, you know, I had an issue and then by that point it could have been patched and then there's no uh, evidence to show that. So certainly, you know, if you do run into a situation, regardless of what community you're in, um, take a look and see if, if the municipality does provide um, that opportunity to provide a claim. Uh, if the damage is less, uh, if, if there's less damage, how do you know it's damage that you have to deal with? I mean, is it possible that it'll do some damage that you think, oh, no problem, and it is a problem? I mean, every situation is different because you just, you know, there's the visible damage and then there's the invisible damage that you see, uh, or that you don't see, I should say. And and really what it comes down to is that, you know, you, you see a flat tire. You, you know the wheels are, are, are perhaps, you know, shifting a little bit and you don't feel the alignment going well. Um, but that that's where you want to go to a licensed mechanic, that if you are experiencing those challenges, get the vehicle assessed, especially now that we're heading towards the winter season. You know, our general mind, reminders in the best of times is to make sure your car is good working order. So if you've hit a pothole and you feel your car is not operating at, the, at its best, get it checked out sooner than later because you don't want to have those problems in the winter months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am going to take another call from Elizabeth in Toronto. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, how are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Okay, um, I'm just calling. I wonder if there's some sort of um, help. I had a pothole damage done in, oh gosh, I don't even remember now, just before COVID hit, in April before uh, COVID hit. Uh, my son was driving the car uh, down, I believe it was Spadina, right where the tracks are at Spadina, and uh, I can't remember. And it was pouring rain. Uh, very windy, rainy. You couldn't see the potholes for anything. Anyway, the damage to the car was about 1500 or more wow. because two tires died on me. And do you have pictures One, of it? Did you file a claim? It, we filed a claim. I have the pictures. Um, the claim went in. Uh, it, and I was told it would take about eight months or so because there was a backlog. And then COVID hit. Um, and in the process of COVID hitting over two years, we were given a letter stating that, um, oh, I can't remember what the letter said, but basically that uh, we had to contact a lawyer uh, because the city was no longer, um, I can't remember how what it was called, but we received a, lawyer's, a letter saying that we can't, that we had to go to other um, places, uh, uh, somewhere else, a, a lawyer to, to deal with this. I just wonder if there's something that can be done. I've, I've kind of put it on the back burner because we're now into three years. Here. Yeah. I, uh, I had to, Elizabeth, I had to go, we're almost, uh, Elizabeth, we're almost out of time. Yeah. So I'm going to give okay, that's Elliot uh, 20 seconds to respond. I'd say call your city councilor. Maybe call him before the election. <laughs> okay. Um, Elliot, uh, we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, let's wrap up with a response to that. Sure. I, th- I think in those circumstances, like you said, call your city councillor, call the ombudsman's office if you need to. Um, you know, Really look into those issues because the claim was filed, and I think there's ways to investigate it and to escalate it internally. Um, but, but keep on it and keep a paper trail no matter what you do. Okay. Uh, and uh, that is all the time we have for today. Elliot Silverstein from the CAA, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Okay. That's, that's it for Fight Back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.